welcome to the Ask a Locksmith podcast. I am Captain Stubbs One, and I'll be your locksmith for this podcast. I've been a locksmith for about five years, and in that time, I've gotten a lot of questions about the trade. This podcast is going to be a forum to field those questions and try to give answers for everybody that are satisfactory so you can feel better about the locks on your home. Uh, if it's a question I don't have the answer to, I will reach out to my boss, who has about 30 years of experience in the field, and my coworker, who has about 40 years of experience in the field. Between the three of us, we have seen all forms of problems on all forms of locks, from the ones on your door to the ones in your business to the ones on your car. Uh, so questions are sent to me at askalocksmithpod at gmail.com from the community, and I also sometimes just write down questions that I receive at work. But we're going to start with a bunch of email questions. First question is from Tactical Dreamer. He says, hey, Stubbs, I know you've already told me the story before, but I think the audience would love to hear how you got into lockpicking and where they should start if they want to get into the hobby or even get a job in the field like you did. Story time. Thanks, Tactical Dreamer. Well, thank you very much, Dreamer. It's a very nice to have you right into the show. It's I think I have a good story about how I got into lockpicking. So I was on Reddit one day about five and a half years ago. There was an Ask Reddit thread that was talking about cheap or inexpensive, hob- you know, free to cheap hobbies that anyone can get into. Somewhere on that list, someone mentioned lockpicking, and they talked about how you could make your own lockpicking tools with wiper blade inserts. At the time, I was working at Advanced Auto Parts, and we replaced wiper blades for free, so I would take people's old wiper blades and tear them down for spring steel and bend and cut and file my own lockpicks. Now, before I go any further... Please check your local laws before you try doing the same. Some states are much more stringent about who and how they allow to own uh, what some states call burglary tools or lockpicks. Most areas are okay, but please, please, please check your local laws before making or buying any of these things. I think it's a fun hobby that a lot of people can enjoy, but please be safe. Do not get yourself arrested just because you want to pick locks while you're watching TV like I did. So I made my own tools and I picked locks in my bedroom for about six months or so. Um, in that time, I learned quite a bit about locks and I got okay at lock picking. There's a lot of people who are better at me, but I'm decent enough. Uh, I called I, I, I called a few locksmith companies about apprenticeships because it was about that time that I realized, wait a minute, people get paid to do this. I should look into that. Uh, so I called my now boss about an apprenticeship. He told me about a school called Foley Bellsaw that mails home coursework for you to do along with some uh, hand hands-on work to do but there's only so much you can learn in the classroom eventually I started to apprentice with my boss riding with him uh, a couple days a week when I wasn't working my other job to get more of the basics down and understand the trade more Uh, it was a very enjoyable experience I did that for about seven months before I made the transition from apprentice part-time to full-time employee and now I've been doing it for about five years. That's something I really enjoy. It's an interesting, unique trade that uh, is so necessary. I think, well, I think all trades are necessary being a trade guy, but I mean, everyone, everyone uses locks and keys basically every day. And people don't know a lot about it, but that's what I'm here to help answer. So Tactical Dreamer, thank you very much for that question. I hope to hear from you again in the future. Our next question comes from It's Major Panda. He says, Stubbs, how often should I change the locks on my house? Is there a desired expanse of time that you should change locks, or does it matter at all? Congrats on launching the show. Well, thank you very much, Panda. Uh, I love your show, by the way, uh, from Father to Son. It's a great podcast. You should check it out. But this is a wonderful question, uh, Panda. It's, it's uh, it, I get it pretty regularly, and there's only about three times I recommend 
changing locks out. So <clears throat> the uh, the first move, the first uh, point you should change your locks is when you move into a new home. You don't know who has keys out there that you don't, you know, you just moved into this home. You don't know if the neighbors have keys, whose teenage kids made keys for their friends. You, you just don't know where key blanks are floating out that could open your door. So it's always a good idea when you move into a new home to call a locksmith out to change the locks or more accurately rekey the locks. Most of the time the locksmith isn't going to actually change the hardware, they're just going to change the internals so that they fit for a new key. Um, second time you may want to change your locks is if you ever have lost control of your key, whether it was stolen from you, you lost it somewhere and have no idea where it is, and it's a concern that it may be in someone's hands who wants to try and get in. Uh, you know, so whenever you are unsure about who all has your key, that is a good time to change your locks. And the only other time I would recommend changing your locks is if something's starting to fail. If you have to pull the key out a little bit and jiggle it around a bunch to actually get the key to work, eventually that key is not going to work at all because it's just so worn down. And that happens over 15, 20 years most of the time, depending on exactly how much use the lock gets. But that's those are the only three times. So new house, loss of key control, something's not functioning properly to an, a, a, a pretty decent extent. Most of the time, as long as it's just a little wiggle, I'd leave it. But if it's if it's a significant enough change in you having to move the key backwards that it's like multiple minutes trying to get the door open, call, call a locksmith and get your locks done up. Uh, you'll notice a much easier time opening your door. So, uh, Panda, thank you very much for the question. I hope to hear from you again in the future. That's a lovely one, and it's a, it's a great question for the first episode here. We still have more. So who is next? Ah, yes, I love this question. Yes, okay. Next on the list is Mattress Monkey. <clears throat> Excuse me, he says, Hello, Captain. First, this is a great idea for a podcast, something short and simple on a very specific topic. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Monkey. Uh, my question, is there a huge difference in the security between a traditional door lock with a key and a door lock with no key and you punch in a code? My landlord recently replaced my front door lock with the keyless entry... Keyless electronic lock and i really miss the security of having a specific key but is one actually better than the other the type of lock i'm asking about is below and he shows me a picture of a schlage be 375 which is a wonderful model of electronic deadbolt <clears throat> i'm a big fan of the schlage electronics so there's a lot of lot of uh, parts to this question let's start with there's no real physical security difference between electronic code entry locks and regular residential key entry locks the actual bolt and installation of the hardware is essentially identical. There are new concerns, however. There are different things you have to worry about with a code entry lock than with a key entry lock. So first things first, you should be using more than one code regularly. Ensure that, because this does a couple things. It ensures that the keypad wears down evenly, that you're not only pressing one or two of the same numbers over and over and wearing out those numbers, giving you longer life of the lock. But it also keeps the keypad from being worn down in such a way that it is guessable what your combination may be. Let's say your combination is, uh, I don't know, four, six, seven, one. If someone wants to get in your house and they come up and go, oh, well, the numbers four, six, seven, or one, four, six, seven, and one are the only numbers on this keypad that show any wear and tear on them. I know that the combination is, is uh, some of the, it's those four numbers combined somehow. So having more than one code active at a time keeps that from happening because you'll wear down more than just four digits and it <clears throat> and or changing the code regularly. You don't want to have the same code be the only code in use for years at a time. You want to change it up sometimes. You want to have 
more than one code active. So if you have a spouse that lives with you or a significant other or uh, roommates, give them a separate code. Have the landlord program in a second code just for them so that the keypad wears down more evenly. The lock, the landlord will be happy because they'll have to replace the lock further away. The lock will last a lot longer. Uh, and you'll be happy because it's more secure for you. So th that's the first big thing is uh, making sure to use more than one code or change it somewhat regularly. Second, some models still have a key override. The BE375 does not. So let's say you're out on vacation for a couple weeks and when you come back, the battery that powers that lock has died. How do you get back in? Well, the two small nubs just underneath the thumb turn on the outside, if you hold a, a nine volt battery up to those nubs, that will power the lock long enough for you to be able to punch the code in again and unlock the lock, uh, allowing you to get back in without having to call a locksmith and make a big hassle out of it. So if you ever are locked out with that lock, make sure to just go. There's no need to panic. Well, a little bit of panic's fine, but <laughs> you don't need a lot of panic. Just find yourself a good nine volt battery, hold it up to those nubs, punch your code in, and you'll be able to open the lock up as you normally would. The only thing about code entry I'm not super excited about um, and I'm a little worried about are the locks that have Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or Z-Wave or some form of internet communication capability, some form of wireless communication to them. This model does not have that. This is just a standalone, all kept to itself unit. All the smarts are on a board that only sit inside the lock. It doesn't communicate with anything other than itself. And I, I don't want to get anyone too panicked. Those locks that are Bluetooth and Wi-Fi enabled, to my knowledge, there haven't been any form of breakthroughs in breaching them. But I don't like the idea of having another way to attack the lock from a burglar's perspective. And even if it's not something they have done, it's certainly something that is possible for them to do, is to make some form of program that could connect to the lock's Bluetooth signal and hack it open in just a few seconds. But that is not a concern with this model of Schlage, again. So, Mattress Monkey, I wouldn't worry one bit. That lock is no less secure than the deadbolt that was likely on the door prior to the installation of that electronic code entry lock there for you. All right, well, Mattress Monkey, thanks so much for the question. I hope to hear more in the future. Uh, it is because of people like you writing in questions that I get to make this show, which has been fun so far, even though it's the first episode. <laughs> I'm only about halfway done. I'm really enjoying it as I make it. We have more questions. Uh, we have one from Rob Hudak. Hudak? Hudak? How do I pronounce this last name? I feel like Ben Hansen. He says, hey there, simple question. What padlock can I feel the most secure in purchasing? Also, disc lock versus padlock. Who's the victor? See, he says simple question, but he doesn't know my job. That is <laughs> so much broader of a question than what padlock can I feel the most secure in purchasing? Um, so the first, the first question is, what are you locking up? If you are locking up something inexpensive, if you're locking up your gym shorts at Planet Fitness, $3 master padlock from Walmart is going to be plenty. You don't need anything crazy just to lock up some $20 gym shorts. Are you locking up $3,000 worth of lawn mowing equipment in your shed? You're probably going to want more than just a $3 padlock from Walmart. Um, so first things first is I would never tell someone to get a lock that they don't need for whatever it is they're locking up. Think about the cost of the thing you're locking up and how much are you willing to chance a certain level of lock. But I know that is not exactly what Rob here is asking. He wants to know what are the best padlocks he can buy. There's a lot of answers to that, Rob. Uh, first thing first, good padlock brands to look for, just as a good rule of thumb, American Lock, 
and Avis. Those two are some very well-known companies on the market. They make higher quality stuff than you're going to find anywhere for the most part um, without really doing some digging on getting some specialized, unique padlocks. But they're, they're, they're good all-around market padlocks that are way, way uh, just head and shoulders above quality-wise. A lot of the more inexpensive stuff you see in Walmart and in hardware stores around the country. Uh, and that, that's for a couple of reasons. First and foremost is they have a more proper five pin, pin tumbler lock cylinder internally, generally speaking with some security pins that make it much more difficult to pick. They have, uh, very unique keyways, so it's hard to get keys for them to attempt to bump them open. Uh, and they have built-in stuff like you can't shim the shackles on those because they're ball-bearing shackles. They're not uh, cone shackles. It, it's, uh, they're much more secure in a lot of fashions than most padlocks are going to find if you're going to look for American and Avis locks. Um, he asked specifically about disc lock versus padlock. Now, disc locks are a little bit more secure than just a standard padlock. They remove the ability to be shimmed. And uh, they, they, to a degree, the body of that padlock guards the shackle from being damaged. But the bodies on those aren't necessarily super thick and brand dependent. They're not always hardened very well. Uh, if you really want something that, because let's be honest, if a burglar's going to try and open a padlock, most of the times they're just going to try and break or cut it off. If you really want something that's going to protect against that form of attack, you want to get a guarded shackle padlock. Um, something like the Abus 90 RK backslash 50 titanium where the actual body of the padlock you know quarter inch thick steel comes rising up around the shackle so you have to cut through half of the body of a padlock just to get to the shackle to try and cut it off those are the real victors in the padlock world um but rob that's a wonderful question um another note on padlocks that most people don't ever think about if you have a padlock for your shed that you would say like set to your house key so that you don't have as many keys to worry about most locksmiths can do that if you were to go to your local locksmith and bring them the key that works your house and say hey i'd like to get a padlock that that works with this key they can probably do that for you uh and this way you only have you have one key that works your shed you have the key that works your shed is the key that opens your front door if you want it set up that way um, that is definitely something that can be done. Most people don't realize that you can set a padlock to be the same kind of key as a house key. Rob, that's a wonderful question. I hope to hear more from you in the future. Uh, that is the end of community questions. So again, if you have a question that you would like to be featured here in community questions, please send it to me at askalocksmithpod at gmail.com. I'm not saying I'm going to get to it very next episode, but it will get put in the list and it will get answered at some point. I had several questions that I'm trying to get some more thorough answers on before I air them for hopefully next episode. Um, but for now, we're going to go to my next segment, uh, Lockpick Reviews. And this is where I'm going to be reviewing movie and video game and TV show Lockpick and Safe Opening. All right. Lockpick reviews. Today we will be dissecting Fallout 3 lockpicking. I watched a couple different videos just to make sure I had a full grasp, a full memory of lockpicking in Fallout 3 and there was more than I more to it than I remembered because I have quite the long response 
quite the long critique of lockpicking in Fallout 3. So there are many things wrong, but a, a couple things they get right. So let's start nice. Uh, they, they actually have two tools doing their respective job, which is great. I see in movies and TV shows quite often that the burglars just have two picks that they put into a lock and the door just magically opens. That's not how this works. Fallout at least gets the fact right that there are two tools doing different jobs. The screwdriver uh, here is acting as a tension wrench, which you use to put rotational energy on the plug of the lock cylinder. As you know, you would turn a key, you have to try to put turning force onto the cylinder in some way. So the screwdriver acts as the tension wrench and allows you to put rotational energy on the plug of the lock. Um, while the bobby pin is acting like a pick. And I have used bobby pins as lock picks. Now to the incorrect. First, <laughs> they are picking the wrong side of this lock. There are no wafers on that side, more than likely. That looks to be a Y11 keyway wafer cylinder lock. Uh, they have the tension wrench on the top end of the lock, which is fine. I have tension wrenches for the bottom and the top of the lock, so that's perfectly reasonable. But they put the bobby pin in the bottom of the lock. There's nothing to manipulate there. There's no wafers to lift and try and set in the respective points to allow the lock to open. So that's the first thing wrong. Second, uh, this is a wafer lock, which you wouldn't actually manipulate anything by twisting a bobby pin back and forth, left to right, in the way Fallout 3 does. You manipulate those wafers by putting the bobby pin in and out and lifting it up and down. And in and out just allows you to manipulate the different wafers. There's going to be between four and six wafers in that lock. Um, so in and out is just getting the different depths to get to different wafers, where up and down is actually lifting them and manipulating them to the point where the lock would open when they're all set in the correct point. So first... First things first, you don't rotate left and right to attempt to pick a lock. You thrust in and out and push up and down. Uh, third. Um, I, while I say the tension wrench is right, it's also wrong. Um, you don't apply tension when you think you have the lock set and picked correctly. You apply light tension continuously while you pick a lock and while moving the pick in and out. You apply light tension continuously so that when you set a wafer or a pin, it stays in place. If you were to not put any tension while you're trying to set a lock, they're just going to drop back down and not stay set. And you're not going to make any progress in actually opening the lock up at all. So while I like the fact that they actually show a tension wrench and it's actually doing its job as a tension wrench, it's not doing its job properly. Uh... So that is, that is an, uh, another problem with the way Fallout 3 handles lockpicking. Um, four, once you break the shear line, so the shear line is the point where all, when all the wafers and pins are lined up together in their appropriate fashion that the lock would open. So when they're all lifted to the same height that the key would lift them to, that's called the shear line. So once you break the shear line in real life, you've picked the lock. So as soon as that lock cylinder moves from the 12 or 6 o'clock position, in Fallout 3, it would be picked. I wouldn't get three quarters of the way through that turn and then suddenly break my pick. That's not how this works in real life. You, as soon as that shear line is actually broken, you're done. You've picked it. Now, you may come into some resistance, but that is not because the lock isn't picked. That's something more internally having a problem. That could be 
uh, door sitting and pushing pressure against the latch so that you can't actually easily turn the cylinder. It could be that it's old and cruddy and full of junk and you just need to spray a little bit of lubricant in there to keep the, uh, to smooth things out so that the lock can open properly. Sometimes it's just that you need to put a little more force. Sometimes you need to pull the door to you to take some pressure off. Sometimes you need to push the door away from you to take some pressure off. But under no circumstances have I ever had a lock stop and not open after I broke that shear line which happens all the time in Fallout 3 and Skyrim and a couple other games that have a similar lock-picking minigame to them. Um, and the other thing that this and a lot of games get wrong is the frequency at which lockpicks break. Uh, I've been doing this for five years. I've broken three lockpicks in my life. It's not that you can't break a lockpick, but once you have picked a lock once, you understand how much pressure you need, and it is... Generally speaking, nowhere near enough pressure to break a lockpick. I've broken lockpicks more likely from trying to push pins that were not being ready to be set at that point than actual rotating too hard. So I'm going to give Fallout 3 lockpicking a 2 out of 10 because they did get a couple... Um, I'm sorry, not 2 out of 10, 2 out of 5. They did get a couple things right. They actually had two separate tools doing their job respectively, but they didn't get enough right to win me over. They they need to do a better job trying to emulate real-life lockpicking in order to make me a happy locksmith playing video games. That, everybody, is the end of the show. Thanks so much for ch joining me on the first episode of the Ask a Locksmith podcast. I hope for so many more questions in the future. I already have a bunch more lined up for the next episode. So we're, don't worry, we're going to get to as many as we can every other week. And here at the end of the show, we just have a few people to thank who uh, help make this show possible. So first and foremost, I'd like to thank Anchor.fm for hosting this podcast. Uh, they do it for free for me, guys, so thanks for them very much. Uh, I don't know if we'd be hearing this without them. Second off, I'd like to thank Bensound.com, a wonderful place to get some royalty-free music. It was... Uh, Quite a good selection there, and I found exactly what I was looking for. I definitely recommend everyone go check out bensound.com for some royalty-free music for your podcast or YouTube videos. Third, I'd like to thank Ratcliffe Lock and Safe. If you're in the Connecticut area and need some locksmith work done, go on and search up Ratcliffe Lock and Safe. They're the guys with the big red vans. I'd like to thank Clobberin' Time on Twitter, at Clobberin' Time. That's Time the Herb for supplying the art for this podcast. Alex, you're a wonderful guy. You make beautiful art. Thanks so much. Everyone go check him out on Twitter at Clobber in Time. Give him a follow. And uh, last but not least, I would like to thank our listeners to this podcast. It is not possible for this show to exist without you guys. You guys are the ones that send in the questions and give me motivation to make this show every week. So thank you so much for listening and for sending your stuff in. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.